Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Psalm 139. 1984, President Ronald Reagan designated the third Sunday in January as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, corresponding it with the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade that legalized abortion. Since then, Southern Baptists have been recognizing this Sunday as a day to set aside to draw particular attention to those uh, issues, uh, the biblical truth uh, that all life, all human life is sacred, and to turn attention to the need for us to stand for uh, those moral issues in our society that correspond to the sanctity of human life. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 139, and I have the privilege of turning our attention this morning uh, to this topic. I've entitled the message this morning, The Sanctity of Human Life. We are who we are because God is who He is. The truth is, the fact that human life is sacred is rooted in the fact that God is who He is. Because God is a loving, careful, powerful creator, and that's where the, the holiness of human life comes from. Were evolution true, then there would be no Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. There'd be no need to celebrate that. But because God is who He is, then we are who we are. And so this morning we're going to look at Psalm 139, and Psalm 139 contains perhaps the clearest uh, description of how God has created us even from our mother's womb. But I feel like it would do an injustice to this psalm to only look at verses 13 through 16 this morning. And so, by God's grace, we're going to look at the entire psalm today because the entire psalm speaks of who God is. And again, we are who we are because God is who He is. And so let us understand what David has to say this morning about who God is. A note about structure this morning, Psalm 139 is really can be divided into four stanzas of six verses each. Uh, so verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, 13 through 18, and 19 through 24. And we're going to outline this, this psalm this morning by looking at one particular characteristic of God in each of those, in each of those stanzas. Read with me this morning in Psalm 139 beginning in verse 1. O Lord... You have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Third stanza. For you did form my inward part, 
and you did weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me when there as yet was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with thee. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against thee wickedly. And your enemies, they take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you, Lord, for how you've revealed yourself to us in it. Lord, we're grateful, Lord. We pray, God, that you'd help us this morning, God, to open our eyes. May the Holy Spirit teach us and help us to see wonderful things from your book. In Jesus' name, amen. We are who we are because God is who he is. In the first stanza this morning, I want us to see and focus our thoughts around the idea that God is a God of complete knowledge. Verses 1 through 6, David, who writes this psalm, describes a God who is a God of complete knowledge. As we walk through this psalm, this psalm is going to deal with some, some lofty, majestic characteristics of God. The first here is his omniscience, the idea that he knows everything. The second we're going to see is his omnipresence, that he is everywhere. And then thirdly, his omnipotence, that he has, he has unlimited creative power. And while those, those attributes are absolutely true about God, it's important to see the way that David describes them in this psalm. He describes them not, not as a theology professor lecturing to students, but rather as one who is who has come to know this good, good God and has come to personally experience and relate to Him. And he describes these characteristics in that fashion. Almost every verse here contains either a first or a second person personal pronoun, an I or a me or a my or a you or a your. So this is a very relational psalm. So when David speaks of this God who is, who is omniscient, He's speaking of him in personal tones. Notice he says here in verse 1, God of complete knowledge, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. It's as if David pulls out every noun he can think of. It's like he pulls out his thesaurus and uses all the words about knowledge in it. He talks about examining and knowing and scrutinizing. He talks about uh, searching and and understanding. David here uses a variety of words to describe the awesome knowledge that God has. He continues by describing his own actions. Notice he says, when I sit down, when I rise up, 
when I'm walking, when I'm lying. It's as if David is saying, no matter what I'm doing throughout my entire daily actions, God knows. Listen to how A.W. Tozer so eloquently describes the knowledge of God. God has never learned from anyone. God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity? He would be imperfect and less than God himself. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones, all dominions. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed, he never wonders about anything, nor except when drawing men out for their own good does he ever seek information or ask questions. God is a God of complete knowledge. Now let me ask you this. How does that make you feel? Let's put it another way. Let's say that I have a friend. We'll just call him Malcolm. And and, and through a, a, a weird, unnamed, odd, circumstance he was bit by a radioactive spider or something happened and and Malcolm now has the unique ability to read thoughts 100% accurate at all times he can totally instantaneously know exactly what you're thinking would you like to meet my friend Malcolm would you like my friend Malcolm to come and live with you for a week We have apprehension about that, don't we? Because we know what we think. What if I were to tell you, however, that my friend Malcolm wants to be your best friend? In fact, Malcolm loves you. More than any other person in the entire universe, he loves you. He's demonstrated over and over that regardless of the fact that he has read your thoughts, he chooses to love and accept you regardless. On many occasions, he has demonstrated that he is willing to sacrifice himself in order for your good, in spite of what he knows about you. Does that change your attitude about Malcolm? You see, the fact that God has complete knowledge, it can be scary. It can make us apprehensive. But notice how David responds. How does David respond to this this idea that God has complete knowledge? Verse 5, you have searched me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. This is not the hand of, of oppression, but this is the hand of protection. You've got your hand over me. You've hemmed me in as far as protection goes. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. You see, our relationship with the one who knows everything about us informs how we respond to that person. 
David knows this God. David is a man after after God's own heart. And because of that, he can say, this is great. You protect me. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain it. Look at the second stanza. In the second stanza, we see a God who is a God of continual presence. Continual presence. Not, Not only complete knowledge, but now continual presence. David says in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Now, the desire to flee from God's presence is as old as the fall. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to run away and hide from God. As we move through time, we see Jonah running away from the will of God. And today, people are continually running from God's presence. I'm a principal. And um, sometimes it's hard to find students when they're in trouble. They don't just walk up to you and say, Hey, Mr. Mackey, how are you doing? Hope you're having a good day. When you know you're, they're looking for, when, when they know that you're looking for them. But when David here is saying, Where can I flee from your presence? He's not really desiring to run from God. This is, this is a, a poetic way that he is, is using to ask these questions in order to emphasize and illustrate God's omnipresence. And we'll see that as we, as we move toward the end of the stanza. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And so now he uses three contrasts. The first contrast is a high-low contrast. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go up as high as I can go. If I were to get on a rocket ship and go to the moon, I would find God there. And then he goes on to say, if I, verse 8, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Sheol here is the, is the idea for the grave. If I, if I go down to the depths of the earth, you're there as well. I can't go high enough and I can't go low enough to get away from your presence. He says in the next verse, If I take the wings of the dawn or dwell to the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. You see the wings of the dawn, right? That speaks of the dawn. That speaks of the sunrise. The sun rises in the east. And so he says, if I were to head to the dawn, if I were to take on wings and fly to the dawn and to reach the eastern horizon, you'd be there. Then he goes on to say, if I, if I go toward the furthest, remotest part of the sea, well, where, where David is situated in Palestine, the sea is to the west, the Mediterranean Sea. So he says, I could go to the eastern horizon where the sun rises. I could go to the west and get on a boat and go as far as I can go on the sea, and you're there as well. The third, the third uh, contrast he uses is darkness and light. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Dark and light are alike to you. He says here that even if if I were to try to escape your presence by, by going into the darkness, you're there as well. You are there. You see, unlike 
pagan deities who were considered as localized gods. They were the god of this region or the god of that area. Yahweh, David says, is a universal god and is in no way limited by space or by distance. How does this How does this affect David? How does he respond to that? How does he respond to the fact that he cannot get away from the all-seeing and all-searching eye of God? He says in verse 10, Even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. You see, David is comforted by the continual presence of God. When we think about the him going down into Sheol and God being there. The continual presence of God is, is further illustrated as we move into the New Testament. And we see that, that Jesus has come, and when he came, he is God with us. And when, when David says, if I go down into Sheol, it reminds me of the truth that Christ came and died and was buried. Himself went down into Sheol and then came up again. And that truly... Christ went into the grave and conquered it, and that his death and resurrection has given additional meaning to the idea of God's presence here in Sheol. You see, God is who he is. He is a God of continual presence. And then we move into our third stanza, the one that speaks directly to the idea of the sanctity of human life. And not only is it true that God is a God of complete knowledge, and God is a God of continual presence, but Thirdly, God is a God of careful power. Careful power. Notice what David says. For you did form me in my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. I believe coming off of this idea of darkness and how God is the God of the dark places. God is the God of the hidden places. Now David begins to think about his very creation. That this God who is ever-present and this God who is all-knowing is also a God who is all-powerful and that he can create at will. But that, that creative power that, in, 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 that, that, that immediately created all that is, he spoke and it happened, that same God is very, very careful when it comes to creating a human life. Even in the darkness, not only is God there, but God is active. And the dark places that, that David moves to is the, is the womb. For you did form me in my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. You see, when a young lady becomes pregnant, no one knows that the infant is there for several days, sometimes weeks. The mother-to-be herself is not aware there's a baby being formed in her womb. No one knows, but God knows. God is there. God is forming. God is weaving, the psalmist says. He says, you did form my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Well, and David says all of God's works are wonderful, but whenever God comes to, to creating life, that's a fearful and a wonderful thought. 
David personally says, I know it very well. Verse 15, my frame, that is literally my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. I've taught biology and I enjoy science. And, and so when we, when, we, when we teach biology, we, we talk about uh, sperm and egg and mitosis and all those kinds of things. And, and uh, it makes sense to me. I mean, like scientifically, it kind of makes sense to me that you got, a, you got a, a sperm and an egg and they both have half the number of chromosomes and they, they join together and, and you got this, this little one-celled and then two-celled and then four-celled and eight-celled and six So this, 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 this uh, double and divide and double and divide, that kind of makes sense, the way that, that, that little, those little cells multiply and divide and begin to grow and to be formed into a human Part of that makes sense, but there's another part of it that's it's a mystery. The Israelites believed that, that the forming of the baby in the womb was, was one of the greatest mysteries of life. You see, I, I still struggle to wrap my head around how whenever these cells double and divide and double and divide, how, how which cell knows to become a bone cell and which cell knows to become a part of the heart muscle. And one cell knows how to become a fingernail, and another cell knows how to become part of the tongue. I mean, how does that happen? When our babies were born, they were, they were fairly large babies. My, my son was 8 pounds and 5 ounces, and my daughter was 10 pounds, 2 ounces when they were born. And it was kind of a surprise to both of us. But I remember thinking and, and learning and understanding that when the child was in the womb that they were surrounded by amniotic fluid and, and they were fine with that and they were happy and they were warm and they were dark and they were cared for and they were just kind of breathing in amniotic fluid and breathing out amniotic fluid. But I can't wrap my mind around the fact that, that one minute they're there and the next minute they're breathing air. And were they to ever try to breathe amniotic fluid again, it would not go well. How does that happen? See, human life is a mystery. It's a mystery that God, in his omnipotent power, carefully creates. David describes this, this creation as, uh, as, as if it were a tapestry. He says, God has woven me in my womb. That's the, the second part of verse 13. And when we come down to verse 15, he says, I've been intricately woven. I've been intricately uh, wrought in the depths of the earth, in the dark places, in my mother's womb, God put me together. It describes how not only is he, is he weaving it, but he's intricately using many, many colors coming together in a very complex and complicated pattern to put together this wonderful, beautiful, complex fabric that ends up being my son and my daughter. God is a God of careful power. He says in verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book, they were all written. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not even one of them. You see, before any of this ever happened, God knew day one, and day two, and day three, and the last day that there was. David goes on to think that, that, this, that this, this careful investing of creative energy didn't just stop at birth, but no, look at 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. 
If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I think about God and and how not only has he put such great care into creating me, but now every day God's thoughts are to me. Every day God continues a, a holding together of my cells and my organs and my heart is pumping and my lungs are breathing. Every day God continually turns his thoughts toward me more than the number of the sand. And you see, it's because God is who he is that we are who we are. It is because God is an omnipotent, carefully creating God. Human life is sacred. And now we come to the fourth stanza. And the fourth stanza takes a sharp, seemingly sharp left turn. We've spoken, David has, has, has joyfully, passionately written a beautiful ode to an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. And now we read in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against thee wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. One commentator even was as wrongfully bold as to suggest that Psalm 139 would be the most beautiful of all psalms had it ended at verse 18. Now, obviously, we reject that idea, understanding that Psalm 139 is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a unified whole, and there's purpose to all of it. And so let's seek to find out why David now turns his thoughts the wicked. He finishes the psalm in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. You see, the truth is, is that while there are those who are comforted by the omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence of God, there are others who are not. And because they run from and rebel against God, they deserve and will receive his just condemnation. You see, God, the first three stanzas, David speaks to who God is. And in the last stanza, he addresses how we respond to this God. You see, God is a God of complete knowledge. God is a God of continual presence. God is a God of careful power. And then as it relates to everyone else, when we respond to God, one of two things will happen. God will then be a God of condemning justice, verses 19 through 22. Or God will be a God of consecrating grace, verses 23 and 24. You see, if God is who David says he is, all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present, all-powerful. If God really did create each of us the way that David says he did, then that means every one of us is accountable to this creator God. And David responds by talking about those who are accountable to this creator God but do not submit to him. They live their life in rebellion to him. And David's passion 
is not so much a hatred for the sinner as it is a love for God, a love for a zeal and a passion for God's glory and God's justice and a personal desire on his part to distance himself from that lifestyle and attitude. You see, we see in verses 19 through 22 this condemning justice. But notice David does not put himself in a place of pride or arrogance. David is not saying, oh, there are those over here who who'd hate you, God, and I hate them too. I'm a lot better than they are. I'm innocent. I've never done anything wrong. They're the bad guys. Get them, God. No, that's not what David does at all. David rightfully acknowledges and, and rightfully yearns for God to punish the wicked. But in the very next breath, he calls upon God to search him. Search me. Know my thoughts. God, I am fully aware that the lifestyle and the attitudes and the sinful tendencies of those who live their life in rebellion to you, I am, I am frightfully aware that those things can creep into my life as well. And so, God, I humbly come to you, submit my life to you, and say, please turn your searching, all-knowing eye on my heart to reveal any of those tendencies that I might have so that then I can continue to walk in the way everlasting. You see, this God of complete knowledge, continual presence, careful power, will either be a God of condemning justice or a God of consecrating grace, who in his grace we, uh, we ask, invite, allow to come in and to consecrate us, to make us holy. Just a few final thoughts as we close this morning. First of all, as we do focus this morning on this idea of the sanctity of human life, it is important to remember that human life is only sacred because of the careful creation of God. And so in light of that, then let us stand firm on moral and political issues that relate to the sanctity of human life. At home, let us as parents instill in our children a love for and respect for every person, regardless of age, race, regardless of quality of life, regardless of how different they may be from us, it's important that we begin early teaching our children that all life is sacred. At the office, let us treat each person with respect and godlike love. I think of what Paul said in the New Testament when he says, Owe no man anything except love. And if we, if we if we take the converse of that, it's as if God says, you are to owe no one on the, on, on, on the planet anything except you are indebted to every person on the planet and the debt you owe them is love. At the polls, let us stand with men and women who uphold the biblical standards of sanctity of human life. And then as we care for our elderly loved ones, let us do so, having our decisions informed by the truth that all life is precious and all life is sacred.
one last final thought, and, and as, we, as we come to Psalm 139, let us ask ourselves, do we invite God's scrutiny into our life, or do we run from it? Jesus says in Matthew that there's this, that there's this, this stone, and that either we will fall on that stone and be broken, or that stone will fall on us and we will be crushed. That is, either we humble ourselves in brokenness and come to God. Our God will bring swift wrath on us one day. You see, either, either we're a 19 through 22 people or we're a 23 and 24 people. You see, either we are in the category of condemning justice or we're in the category of consecrating grace. And make no mistake, everyone begins 19 through 22. Everyone begins having been condemned already. Everyone begins separated from God, enemies of God, rebelled against God. And it's only because God in His mercy has sent His Son to come and to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we couldn't live and brought Him back to life in order to redeem us, to forgive us, and to make this reconciliation and redemption a reality. It's only because David is rightly related to God that he understands that this God is who He is. And that he can come to this God and ask for being searched. He began the psalm, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me. He ends the psalm with the only request in the entire psalm. The only thing God, David asked for in the entire psalm, search me and know me, God. Where are you today? I invite you this morning to turn to Christ receive his forgiveness, receive a right standing before God, and then you're able, like David, to take comfort and refuge in his knowledge and in his presence and in his power today. In just a moment, we're going to pray and move to a time of invitation. As we do, if you find yourself apprehensive before this God, he invites you to come and to receive his grace. There'll be men down front who would love to talk with you and pray with you. And so introduce you to someone who can take the scriptures and show you what the Bible says about repenting and following him. Or maybe you're looking for a church home, and a church that preaches the Bible and loves others. Then I'm a testimony that by God's grace, you'll find no better place to plant your life. We invite you to come in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to us in it. God, this morning as we, as we consider real significant issues as it relates to the sanctity of human life and our culture around us, God, may we be firmly planted on the truth, God, of who you are. And it's out of that that we come, God, to find value in who we are. God, I pray that you'd work in hearts this morning. And God, I pray that you would convict and you'd comfort and you'd draw in Jesus' name.